I read years ago about a study with this warning. Marriage may be hazardous to your figure. According to this study in a book I read, it says during the first 13 years of marriage, a happy woman will gain 18.4 pounds on average. And an unhappy woman will gain 42.6 pounds. Happy men will gain 19 pounds in their first 13 years of marriage. And unhappy men will gain 38 pounds. I have gained 40 pounds since I was married 12 years ago. I don't know what that says about my marriage. But I am happily married, which means there must be a mistake in this study. Perhaps because they don't account for wives who cook very well. Or in my case, uh, living in the Philippines where you can call almost any restaurant and they will deliver to your house 24-7. The sad truth is that there are many unhappy people in relationships whether as singles in friendships or as married couple between spouses or even between business colleagues. They don't show their unhappiness in weight gain, but it shows in the deep darkness of their hearts. It's not because happy couples do not fight. It's often because unhappy couples don't know how to resolve conflicts. As we talked about last week, conflicts and disagreements in relationships, even in loving relationships, are inevitable because people are sinful. Here in any relationship, you take two imperfect people and you put them together hoping for a perfect relationship. But two imperfect people coming together brings with it an imperfect relationship, often with conflicts and disagreements. Last week, we talked about three ground rules or three heart motivations that must undergird every conflict. Go fight. Fight. Fight it out. It's very natural. We are sinful people. But when you fight, make sure these three ground rules are intact. Make sure that there is a continual pursuit of love. Not a pursuit of change, but a pursuit of love. Make sure there is the seeking and the seeing of the good in others. And then the admonition not to do anything harshly or something you will regret. If you missed the sermon last week, I invite you to go to our website uh, and listen to this very important message. While conflicts are inevitable, they'll naturally happen, resolutions... To conflict and reconciliation will not. Conflict resolution and reconciliation is something you and I need to work at with the help of the Holy Spirit. It will not naturally come. And that's what we want to take a look at this morning as we continue our study in the Song of Solomon in our series entitled, This Thing Called Love. Now, we talk about conflict resolutions. Perhaps you are expecting that I'm going to give you top 10 ways for how you can resolve conflicts. Things that you must do practically. 
I can spend the next few days talking about conflict resolution techniques. And there are many. You can read them in most marriage books, whether Christian or not. They'll tell you don't shout when you're fighting. Count to ten before speaking so that your anger will have subsided. List ten things that you like about your spouse to try to enhance or rekindle that love. Never say never, never say always. Get a mediator, go see a counselor. Don't fight in front of your children. Resolve issues before you go to bed. I've talked about techniques before. I've shared with you the techniques Cindy and I often use to resolve a fight, especially a fight where we both feel that we are right and no one wants to admit anything wrong. And so no one wants to say sorry first. And so we will resort to the technique of kindergarten children and we will agree to say sorry at the same time. And as I've told you before, we will count to three One, two, three, and then say sorry together. But I will say sorry about a half second after she does, so that in my mind she said sorry first. You can get those techniques to resolving conflicts in any books. But when we talk about biblical conflict resolution or reconciliation, we're talking more than about techniques. We want to talk about the biblical elements that make up Conflict resolution. Three elements that are part of any reconciliation process. And we will look at the scriptures this morning. You see, when we employ techniques towards conflict resolution, it only addresses the superficial aspects of reconciliation. It masks the real problems that are often there. You see, it's easy to put up with someone. It's easy to pretend that all is well. But because the issue is never really dealt with, the issue will often not resolve itself and rear its ugly head over and over and over again. And that's why couples, friends, will fight over the same things over and over and over again. You see, true conflict resolution is not about winning or losing. It's not even about giving or taking. That's all part of the techniques of resolution. Real reconciliation is complete. It is satisfying. It is unconditional. What are the biblical elements that make up reconciliation? Let's take a look. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn with me to the Song of Solomon, chapter 6, verse 4, as we exposit to chapter 8, verse 4. Song of Solomon, chapter 6, verse 4, to chapter 8, verse 4. If you're new to the Bible, uh, it's towards the middle of your Bible. Song of Solomon, chapter 6, verse 4. As you're turning to this passage, let me remind you from the sermon last week that the last time we left our arguing couple, they had had a fight in the evening. Solomon had come late in the night desiring intimacy with his wife, only to be spurned by his wife. And so he leaves very dejected, disappointed, angry, frustrated, and he goes off to his garden to feed his pets and to do some gardening work. His wife, on the other hand, is upset that he has come home late and wants things that she doesn't want to give. 
And so she is also stubborn in that sense, will not give in, and she's hurt. But then, after a few moments, she wants to seek reconciliation, and she opens the door, but he is gone, and she looks for him, even imploring the help of her friends. She finds him in his garden, goes to him, and this is where we pick up the story in verse 4. Look how Solomon greets his wife. Oh, my love, you are as beautiful as Tirzah, lovely as Jerusalem, awesome as an army with banners. Turn your eyes away from me, for you have overcome me. Your hair is like a flock of goats going down from Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep which have come up from the washing. Everyone bears twins and none is barren among you. Like a piece of pomegranate are your temples behind your veil. When his wife comes to the garden, Solomon is still angry. But he doesn't grunt. He doesn't sigh. He doesn't say, what do you want? as many husbands would do to their wives in the same situation. He doesn't wait for an apology. He doesn't act defensively, expecting a response of anger from his wife. He surprisingly greets his wife with genuine compliments. As you read verse 4 to verse 7, it should elicit in your mind that these words are very familiar because these words are used to describe his wife, while they were still dating, when they first met. And these are the very same words Solomon used to describe her on their wedding night. Describing her eyes, her smile, her teeth, her cheeks. He says she is beautiful, lovely. In fact, in verse 5, he says, Turn your eyes away from me, for they have overcome me. What he's saying is, you are so beautiful that I'm confused. I don't know what to think. How can I be angry at the one who stands before me, the one who I love? And, and, and sometimes we're in that sort of tension. We're angry. And it's very easy to be angry when we don't see the other party, right? That's why people can shoot off angry emails. That's why they can, over social media, bash someone. But it's very difficult to be very angry with someone when you see them face to face. And Solomon is saying in verse 5, I see you now, the one I love, and it's confusing me. Turn your eyes away from me. Don't look at me so that I can continue to be angry with you. But what you see in the response of Solomon is a foundation of unconditional love. You see, for there to be true reconciliation and true resolution to conflict, there must be number one of your taking notes. Number one, a foundation of unconditional love. Solomon says in verse 5, how can I be angry at you when the one who stands before me is one I love? There has to be unconditional love for Solomon to no longer be angry at his wife for hurting him deeply. You see, unconditional love is a love that doesn't just go through the motions. It, it's not pretend love. But unconditional love is a love that overcomes even the most hurting of arguments and of conflicts is it a love that cannot be bought it is a love that will never run out and you can read in romans chapter 8 more about 
a picture of this type of love. It takes great love to forgive a spouse who has been unfaithful. It takes great unconditional love to forgive a friend who has stabbed you in the back. You see, as I mentioned before, we use the word love so carelessly sometimes. The Greek has many words for love. We only have one. And we often use the word love with such ease that we don't really know what true love is. True, unconditional love is a love that doesn't just go through the motions. It's a love that can overcome hurts and conflicts and disappointments. For any true reconciliation, any true conflict resolution, there must be that first element of the foundation of unconditional love. It works both ways. You both give it and you receive it. Perhaps this illustration will help you understand. What's the difference between your response to the fact that if someone cuts you off as you're driving on the road, you're angry with them, right? You're angry with them and you're going to chase them down. You're going to tailgate them. You're going to flash your high beams just to show your displeasure. You don't know who they are, but they've cut you off. They've hit your pride as a driver. And so you got to get them back. What's the difference between that and when your children answer back, they talk back at you, they smart off. That also hits at your pride. But in one case, you're willing to forgive your children. And in the other case, through your actions, you have said, I'll never forgive this unknown driver. And the difference is because you love your children. Because if you don't, the first time your children smart off or answer back, you go to the room, pack their bags, and toss them out of the house. I don't think any parent would do that. Some are tempted to do that, but most don't. It's because you may be angry with them, but you love them unconditionally. And unconditional love will affect the response you have towards dealing with conflict. I remember the story of a woman who was sick, and so she went to the doctor. The doctor examined her, uh, did a number of tests, and told her the bad news. Lady, I'm sorry to have to tell you this, but I'm afraid you've contracted rabies. Uh, for those of you who don't know, rabies uh, is often a disease most often associated with when an animal bites you. You have rabies, the doctor told her. Well, the doctor left the room for a few minutes, and when he returned, the woman was busy writing on a piece of paper. And so he asked her, what are you doing Writing your will? It's not that bad. We have, we have cures for that. Don't worry. You'll live. She says to him, no, doc. I'm not writing my will. I'm making a list of all the people I'm going to bite. <laughs> Who are the people you want to bite in revenge? When the opportunity presents itself, even though you have forgiven them, when that opportunity comes for you to bite them in revenge, how many of you will jump at the chance to see for their failure? Because it's a great litmus test to see if you have unconditional love towards them or not. 
You see, we can say we love everyone. But the reality is the heart speaks truth. And we can bring some bad events to someone we don't like. Are we willing to do it? Unconditional love does not mean you will no longer remember the offense. You know, I've said it before. I'm not a big fan of the phrase to forgive and to forget. One will never forget an incident in which you have been hurt or burned very deeply. But unconditional love does mean that the offense doesn't bother you anymore. It doesn't affect how you treat others because unconditional love has overcome that offense. In marriage, if there is no unconditional love, then what happens is that couples end up collecting hurts. And there are a lot of couples who live together that are very unhappy. People who are in deep relationships who are very unhappy because they're only putting up a front they're only putting up with the conflict. They're not dealing with the issue. And so they end up collecting hurts. And it goes something like this. I hurt you, I appease you. You hurt me, you appease me. You hurt me, you appease me. You hurt me, you appease me. And before you know it, both are getting a divorce. Because if there's no unconditional love as a foundation, then what happens is that we're ready to bite in revenge. Instead of a loving relationship in marriage, it becomes a tit-for-tat. You do this, I do this to you. That's a terrible way to live. Children, in the same manner, if you don't forgive your parents with unconditional love, in Chinese we call it kyohun, if you continue to keep that bitterness and harbor that bitterness without ever letting it go, then you can't wait you leave the house. If you don't love people unconditionally, you won't really reconcile with them, nor forgive them. You just end up putting up with them. You manage the conflict. You don't address the issue. And when that happens, it's not really a resolution. I think of the story of the great reformer, John Wesley, He was contemporaries with another great reformer of his day, George Whitfield, both godly men. In fact, they worked together in the early days, except they had a differing doctrinal position that caused the rift in their friendship, and they no longer saw each other. Whitfield and Wesley parted company. They worked separately. Once, George Whitfield was approached by somebody who may have expected him to criticize Wesley. The man asked Whitfield, do you think you will see John Wesley in heaven? Whitfield's reply to the man was, oh no, I will not see him, to the surprise of the man who asked. The man said, why won't you see him? Whitfield replied, I will not see Wesley because John Wesley will be so close to the throne of God that I won't be able to see him where I stand. Love that answer. It shows forth the foundation of unconditional love, even amongst differing friends. More than putting up with each other and working together, 
these two men of God understood what true reconciliation was. They don't have to like each other. They don't have to work together. But the foundation of their relationship can still be unconditional love. Look at verse 8 to verse 10. There are 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins without number. But my dove, my perfect one, is the only one. The only one of her mother, the favorite of the one who bore her. Her daughters saw her and called her blessed. The queens and the concubines, and they praise her. Who is she who looks forth as the morning, fair as the moon, clear as the sun, awesome as any army with banners? In these beautiful poetic words, Solomon is basically asking and saying, she is one of a kind. This wife of mine, she has no equal. She's the perfect one, the only one, the favorite of the one who bore her. What's he doing here? When you can tell someone in your anger that they are still number one in your life, the only one, then you have naturally forgiven them. Before she utters a word, Solomon is showing his wife that I, I full, I've fully forgiven you. I've granted you full reconciliation. I've granted you a full pardon for any offense that you may have committed against me. He forgave her because when your relationship is foundation on unconditional love, the natural response is to forgive towards reconciliation. It's hard not to forgive someone with whom you are deeply in love. You see this uh, when two young people are dating. They're madly in love. And so the boyfriend will forgive the girlfriend for always being late. The girlfriend will forgive the boyfriend for forgetting special occasions. But something happens when they get married. They've been married for many years. Somehow they choose not to forgive. You see, the ones who are madly in love, before the other party has to say anything, they will say in their mind, it's okay. It's okay. I, I forgive you. And before the words come out of the mouth, the heart must believe that. You see, the second element of reconciliation or true conflict resolution is that you must have a desire to forgive. A desire to forgive. A desire to forgive. It's very difficult to forgive someone you don't want to forgive. I can come up here and I can talk about forgiveness. I can guilt you. You better forgive someone because Jesus forgave you. And you've heard sermons like that. And you will leave from this sanctuary saying, but I don't want to forgive them. And you won't. True reconciliation comes when there is a deep-seated desire to forgive. Forgiveness is something that must be given. And, you know, you see this in children. Uh, my kids, like many of your children, uh, they'll be fighting like cats and dogs one moment. 
And then without saying a word, like, like a light switch, especially young children, they're the best of friends. They're inseparable. And I've asked my children this. I said, I thought you were fighting with your brother. How come now you're the best of friends? And he'll tell me, because I need someone to play with. When you desire a friend, when you desire something, you will desire to forgive. But then also in children, you see how we adults are in many ways. You know, if you have two fighting children, you want them to reconcile. You can make them say the words, but they won't mean it, right? You get two kids together. All right, tell your brother, sorry, sorry. Now, my kids will say this. I'm sure your kids as well. Daddy, he doesn't mean it. I said sorry. Well, you don't mean it. You didn't say it in the right tone. So we as parents have gotten a bit wiser. We don't just make them say sorry. We, we make them hug each other. We make them kiss each other. And usually they can't do it without laughing. And so that usually breaks the ice. But... but Forgiveness, it's, a, it's an act of the will. It's more than words. It's more than actions. It's an act of the will. You have to desire it. That's where true reconciliation will be found. In a lot of relationships, couples just go through the motion for the sake of family harmony because they think they have to be like this because they're a Christian. And so they go through the motions of forgiveness but they don't desire it. And their words and their tone and their actions are very evident that they don't really forgive. Solomon, in verse 10, had this mindset. I can't even remember what you did. Who is she who looks forth as the morning, fair as the moon, clear as the sun? Is this the woman I was mad at last night? Who is this woman? He is assuring her, I forgive you in such a way that I don't hold this back. I'm not going to file this away that in two years I'm going to bring this up. Hey, you remember that night you spurred me? All is forgiven. I desire to forgive you. I put this incident behind me and I've forgiven. It's an act of the will. Do you desire to forgive in reconciliation? I don't know if you like the Peanuts comic strip series, uh, the Charlie Brown Snoopy stuff. But I enjoy it, and uh, I remember reading a, a comic strip in particular. And if you know this series well, you know that uh, there's a brother and sister named Lucy and Linus. Uh, Lucy is the bossy older sister. Uh, Linus, uh, the, the softer, uh, kinder younger brother always with his security blanket. Linus was watching television and Lucy comes into the room and tells Linus to change the TV channel to what she wants to watch, threatening him with her fist if he doesn't change the channel. Linus says to Lucy, what makes you think you can walk right in here and, and take over the television? Lucy says to her kid brother, these five fingers. Individually, they are nothing. But when I curl them together like this into a single unit, 
they form a weapon that is terrible to behold. And then you read in the next strip, Linus tells Lucy, Lucy, what channel do you want? And then in the very last frame of this strip, Linus has left the room, turning away. He, he's looking at his fingers, and he says to his fingers, Why can't you guys get organized like that? A lot of us are so organized that our hands are perpetually clenched. And as someone has said, you cannot shake hands with clenched fingers. A desire to forgive towards true reconciliation means your hands must be open. Never organize too much to fight because you love them too much. Look at the reaction of Solomon's wife in verse 11 and 12. She is literally in shock. I went down to the garden of nuts to see the verdure of the valley, to see whether the vine had budded and the pomegranates had bloomed. Before I was even aware, my soul had been made as the chariots of my noble people. She says in verse 11, I went to find you to see if there was still hope in this relationship, to see if we can make amends. But in verse 12, before I knew it, before I was even aware, my husband Solomon has fully forgiven me. Wow. Verse 12 is a very difficult verse to translate in the Hebrew. This idea of my soul has been made as the chariots of my noble people. Perhaps it's the view that she says, you have put me on your regal royal chariot right at the forefront. You haven't pushed me away. I'm now at the forefront of your life. I'm in shock. I'm amazed. I expected an angry response. You and your desire to forgive me before I even said a word, your heart already forgave me. You see, when there is a desire to forgive on the part of both people in a relationship, it restores confidence that that relationship will endure any conflict. If spouses understand and know that there is a deep desire to forgive, yes, someone will be upset. You'll get mad. If children understand that parents desire to forgive and parents understand that children desire to forgive in a relationship, if that desire is there, then come what may, come whatever the conflict, that relationship can be restored and put intact. As you have the elements of the foundation of unconditional love and a desire for forgiveness, then it will result in the third component of true reconciliation, which is what we'll look at next. Look at verse 13. Return, return, O Shulamite. Return, return, that we may look upon you. What would you see in the Shulamite, as it were, the dance of the two camps? Verse 13 is spoken by friends who had gathered there. They were nosy. They were peering to the garden. Maybe these were the women friends. And when they saw the exchange between Solomon and his wife, they called out to the woman. They were kind of like the, the cheering squad. 
Shulamite, Shulamite. Return, return, so that we may see you, Shulamite. You see, Shulamite is the feminine form of Solomon. Just like Victoria is the feminine form of Victor, Stephanie is the feminine form of Stephen. Shulamite is the feminine form of Solomon. Uh, you can loosely translate it Solomoness, if you want a female form of that. So they're calling out to her Solomoness, Solomoness, Shulamite, Shulamite. What are they saying? They're saying, I picture the both of you so close. Apparently, they were in an embrace. They were hand in hand, holding hands. They were together, his arms around her shoulder, around her waist. What a different picture that has been painted. You see, last week in chapter 5, we saw that they were fighting, feeling very apart. They were in two separate places. They were so far apart, in fact, they had to search for one another. But now they are together. They are pictured so close that they cannot be separated. In fact, the Bible tells us in the end of verse 13... As it were, they were dancing the dance of the two camps. Perhaps they were literally dancing in great closeness. But the Hebrew word for two camps is the Hebrew word mahanayim. Mahanayim literally means two camps. And if you remember from Old Testament history, in Genesis chapter 32, verse 2, When Jacob was returning from his homeland back to meet his brother Esau, he was scared. He had just left his homeland with Laban, back to the promised land. There, God shows up and shows up and appears to Jacob to assure him, saying, Jacob, the camp where you are at is where I am at. God's camp resides in Jacob's camp. It's one and the same. I am here. It's a picture of intimacy and closeness. And the Bible tells us, Jacob named that place Mahanayim, meaning two camps. Perhaps this is a play of words here to illustrate, to remind the readers of the closeness between God and man is the closeness of this man and this woman now. What then do they do after their conflict is towards resolution? The Bible tells us they go to the bedchambers and they are intimate with one another. We don't have time to fully exposit chapter 7. Nothing wrong with preaching it. But let me just give you a, a quick overview. In chapter 7, 1 to 9, you have Solomon describing his wife in very vivid details. Suffice it to say that the words and the description here used to describe his wife are even more intense, more vivid than the description of that wedding night. There is clearly more passion. There is clearly more intimacy. In chapter 7, verse 9, the second part to chapter 13, The wife invites the husband to greater intimacy. I don't have to explain those verses to you. If you read it, it is very apparent. And then in chapter 8, verse 1 to 4, the woman desires great intimacy and closeness with her partner. 
You see in these verses, the third component of true reconciliation is seen. Number three. The third component is that, number three, there is an outcome. There is a result of increased closeness and intimacy. A result of increased closeness and intimacy. To know that you have really resolved the conflict, you must look to see if you are closer and more intimate than before the conflict. That's how you can measure if a disagreement has been really been solved. You see, for a lot of us, we're forced to reconcile. And so we'll say in our mind, okay, I'll say sorry, but I hate you and I'll hate you forever. You haven't dealt with your conflict. When I think about my conflicts with my parents, some of the most intimate, closest moments are when we made up. When my father sits me down and explains to me why he spanked me. My mother explaining why she has to discipline me. I remember those times vividly. And I remember it was in those moments, after the conflict, as the conflict is being resolved, that I could feel the love and the tenderness of my parents to me. Even between couples, some of the most intimate moments, some of the closest moments, and you know this is true, they occur when you have come together in reconciliation. Unless there is this third component of increased closeness and intimacy, then you've only managed your conflicts. If you only superficially dealt with it, you have not resolved it. Eric remarked in his book, All Quiet on the Western Front, and uh, if you don't like to read books, just watch the movie, um, it tells a remarkable encounter between two enemy soldiers during the Second World War. During battle, a German soldier takes shelter in a crater made by artillery shells, artillery shells. Looking around, he sees in the crater a man who is wounded. It is an enemy soldier. He is dying. As the book recounts, this German soldier's heart goes out to him. And so he approaches this dying man and gives him water from his own canteen and listens as the dying man spoke of his wife and children. This German soldier helps this man find his wallet and takes out the picture of his family so that he can look at it one more time. In that encounter, these two men ceased to be enemies. The German had seen the wounded soldier in a new way, not as an enemy, not as an enemy combatant, but as a father, a husband, someone who loves and is loved, someone just like him. You see, that's always the outcome of reconciliation. When you can see with greater intimacy and clarity and closeness that the person to whom you are in conflict with is very much like yourself. And when we can see people as people and not the monsters we have made them in our minds to be, then you will desire to empathize and sympathize with them towards greater intimacy.
There have been many a times, if I'm being transparent to you, when I've gotten very mad at my wife, Cindy. And then as I cooled down in my anger, I realized I was very unfair to her. Because if I put myself in her position, I would have been hurt in the very same way. And she did not deserve the tongue lashing that I gave her. You see, when you can see yourself in the position of the others, put yourself in their shoes. Then you can see that reconciliation brings about greater closeness and intimacy. I never said that reconciliation was easy. It's one of the hardest things to do. Very difficult. The reason it is difficult is the reason we often gloss over and superficially deal with conflict. And that's why there are so many unhappy couples. There are so many unhappy friends. There are so many unhappy churchgoers with people in the same church. They're unhappy because they're only putting up with each other. They're going through the motions of love. They're never addressing the root issues. That's why so many young people are angry with their parents, parents of their children. The list goes on. But if you want real reconciliation, something that is satisfying and fulfilling, it's more than the techniques. You know the techniques. But make sure you have these three elements. Enter into reconciliation with a foundation of unconditional love. Enter into the reconciliation process with a desire to forgive. If that desire isn't there, you might as well not do it. And enter into that reconciliation process desiring an outcome of increased closeness and intimacy. You see, when God gives us His Word, He doesn't give it to us as theory. He doesn't say, hey, go do it, because I'm God and you're people. He lives it out for us through His Son. We see it in the display of His love. God loves us with an unconditional love. That's why He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross on our behalf, to die in our place. He desires to forgive us Bible tells us in John 3.16, He desires to reach out to forgive us. Even though we spit at Him, even though we ignore Him, He desires to forgive us like the prodigal son running back to His loving Father. He is waiting with open arms. I'm ready to forgive you. And He desires to be an intimate walk with us. He calls us friends. Come. Lay your burden at my feet. Take my yoke, it's light. That invitation to walk with Jesus. He exemplifies reconciliation. What are we doing? We treat him like we treat all of our other friends superficial reconciliation. Yeah, God, I kind of love you. I sing about your love. Do it every Sunday. Love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. 
but it's really conditional if I'm honest with myself. But I love you. I say the words. Well, God, uh, I want you to forgive me. And we especially run to him when we need something, all right? That, that sort of fake love. Hey, God, I'm really, really sorry. Forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. I'll never do it again. I'll never do it again. And we do it the next day. When we need something, we run back to God just so we think he won't give us some bad luck or something. When we don't need him, God, I don't need you. Hey, hey God, I'll, I'll be intimate with you. I, uh, I'll desire closeness with you because I'm about to graduate and I need to get a job. I need to pass my board exams. I need to get this business deal. I need to have a child. So, God, I'll, I'll be close to you. When I get it, thanks, God, don't need you anymore. And the way we treat him, it is a wonderment that he still loves us with an unconditional love. He says, I know how you treat me, but I love you anyway. The Bible tells us nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Reconciliation between you and God, he has enabled it through his son, but it's in your hands. Reconciliation between you and friends, church members and colleagues, husband and wife, parents and children, it's in your hands. What are you doing? I end with this story. Story of the French novelist and playwright Alexander Dumas. If you've heard that name before, it's because he wrote the book, The Count of, the Count of Monte Cristo. He wrote The Three Musketeers. The story goes that Alexander Dumas once had a very heated argument with a rising young French politician. Uh, their argument was so intense that a pistol duel, which is very common in that day, was inevitable. You know what a pistol duel is. They would march off a set number of paces and then turn around and shoot each other. And whoever got shot died on the spot. Argument solved. Well, the problem was both men were superb shots. They were excellent marksmen. And so if they did a pistol duel, they'd hit each other and both would die. And that would defeat the purpose of their argument. So they decided to draw lots. And the agreement was that the loser agrees to just go and shoot himself. And unfortunately, Alexander Dumas lost. Pistol in his hand, he withdrew in silent dignity to another room, closing the door behind him. The rest of his friends who had gathered waited in gloomy suspense for the shot that would end his brilliant career. The shot rang out last. The friends ran to the door and opened it and found Dumas smoking revolver in his hand, but very much alive. Alexander Dumas turned to his friends and said these words, Gentlemen, a most regrettable thing has happened. I missed. So it is in reconciliation. It's in your hands. Do you intentionally miss? Let's pray. Lord, is a good reminder even to me of what it means to restore relationships that have been broken. 
It's hard sometimes when the pride of my life and our life takes over, often being pushed to the very ones we love the most, our spouses, our children, our friends. But I pray this morning that through your word, whatever conflicts that there may be that are evident in the people this morning, that they would seek the example of the scriptures and seek for true reconciliation, not simply superficial ones, not simply going through the motions. And I pray this morning that we take the example of Jesus Christ in our life, remembering what he did on the cross. And in that desire to be intimate with us, may we respond likewise and desire an intimate walk with him. And also that of the people we call our brothers and sisters in Christ. Because in that, you will be well pleased. And in that, the reason you died on the cross. As we go to a time of communion this morning, I pray that the symbolic reminder of what you did on the cross will challenge us once again to live lives of reconciliation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.